0: I think we finished with the base of Infinite Consciousness yesterday, is that correct? Mm-hmm. Okay, so we'll come to the next one now Again, Ananda, without giving attention to perception of the base consisting of Infinite Consciousness Without giving attention to perception of the base consisting Hey, okay, there's another now Sorry, I started in the wrong spot I'll start again. Sorry. Again, Ananda, without giving attention to perception of the base consisting of infinite space, without giving attention to perception of the base consisting of infinite consciousness, bhikkhu gives attention to the single state of non-voidness dependent on the presence of perception of the base consisting of nothingness. His mind enters into the perception of the base consisting of nothingness, and he acquires confidence, steadiness, and decision. He understands that disturbances that would be present dependent on perception of the base of infinite space are not present here. Disturbances that would be present depend on perception of the base of infinite consciousness are not present here. And only this measure of disturbance is present. That is to say, the single state of non-voidness depend on the presence of perception of the base consisting of nothingness. He understands this field of perception is void of perception of the base consisting of infinite space It's void of perception of the base of infinite consciousness and he understands there's only this non-voidness that is to say the single state of non-voidness depend on the presence of perception of the base consisting of nothingness so he sees it as void of what is not there but of what remains there he understands there's that still present there Now this too has been for him an alighting upon voidness that accords with what is without perversion of meaning and is pure. Now one of the things which are mentioned here, which are a bit hidden as usual, is the fact that one needs to know in which one of the jhanas one is. In order to know that the other one isn't there and that the next one is there, one has to know exactly which one is now present. This is what the Buddha says here quite clearly, but we have to take special note of it. He says that one is quite clearly aware of the fact that there is the presence of this um, base of nothingness, but that the presence of the base of infinite consciousness and infinite space are not there. So we know we have left one, we've gone to the other. This is an important aspect, um, particularly when people have been able to do this sort of thing without any teacher or any framework of teaching, which does happen, not frequently, mind you, but there are people who um, happen to have, first of all, probably karma from past lives, a mind which has that inclination and um, ability, and they do go into these different states, and without having any framework to relate to, uh, the whole thing does not have a, um, any kind of definite experience in it so it doesn't become an understood experience it remains an experience now on the point of understood experience I also want to mention one other thing we can have experiences in life which are quite insightful they can be minor or major we can, for instance, get angry at someone for something that they neither meant nor really said and become aware of the fact that this was a personal projection and at that time this is an insight but if we do not keep that in mind and resurrect that insight over and over again we will fall into the same error again it can therefore not really be called an insight it can only be called a one-time experience and this is the kind of thing that happens to most people and when it happens the second time, the third time, the fourth time they may remember I've done that before and then they consider themselves that kind of person and if one isn't very alert to oneself one may find that that as an excuse actually, one may excuse oneself with the fact that one is very sensitive or something of the nature. But all one is that is one reacting on impact. So it doesn't become an insight until and unless it is brought into the mind after it has happened and then brought again and again into the mind to become part of its continuum so that it has become habitual. Now this, of course, doesn't only apply to something that I've just used as a uh, simile, but it applies particularly here, where we have (coughs) uh, the uh, uh, occasion to have quite deep insight. Now, voidness, which is uh, sunyata, which is equivalent to anakta, Sunyata means voidness, annata means non-self. But the two can be used interchangeable because if everything is void, where is the self? And if there is nobody in here, how can there be anything in anything? So the two are interchangeable. This happens to be a sunyata sutta. Shula sunyata. Shula means actually little it's little voidness the um, the difference between Maha and Shula Maha means great and Shula means little uh, is that the Maha Sunyata will and would tell us about the um, actual steps for Arahamship whereas here we will at the end learn about the understanding for that so here we have insights insights into the fact that if we keep our mind on one object only we will have peace and quiet and if we are able to go into the jhanas we will recognize that the disturbances become less and less but we will know that even the awareness of nothingness is still a disturbance now unless, if we do have that experience, and unless we bring that back to mind and keep that as an insight which we are able to use for our own benefit it's not an insight, it's an experience and not an understood experience the difference between an understood experience and just an experience is the resurrection of that insight or of that experience into the mind so often that it becomes a well-established insight Okay, and this is necessary with the most minor experience which tells us something and the most major all of them are worth retaining it's very nice i just happened to read about that in a um talk that uh, the uh very well-known monk in Thailand, Ashan uh, Buddhadasa gave, and uh, he of course speaks in Thai, and uh, then some of his uh, Western disciples try to translate that. And apparently in Thai, the word for retaining in the mind is to bake treat. The literal translation for it is to bake treat, in other words to bake it in there so that it's stays. like you bake the enable onto a car. When the enamel has been baked onto the car, it stays on there. So here we bake that into the mind, and he uses that expression "baked treat," which is literally translated from Thai, which gives a very good indication for what we ought to do with our insights in order to make them insights. Until then, they're only experiences. Therefore, writing down is helpful, but it is not. Enough yet, it's got to be put back into the mind, over and over again, on any occasion. So we have here the infinite. Um, the uh, after the infinite uh, base of consciousness, we have the base are uh, consisting of nothingness, and that still is a disturbance. Only this measure of disturbance is present, that is to say, the single state of non-voidness depends on the presence of perception of the basis, consisting of nothingness. Well, first of all, why is it a dis- disturbance? It's immeasurably less of a disturbance than having to think, talk, and act. But it's still a disturbance, because the mind still has to work. And although a mind who does it is well-concentrated at the time, Concentration is work, as we all know, and staying with concentration is work, and focusing mind is work. All of that is work, and therefore disturbance. That doesn't mean we should allow the mind to do what it pleases, because that's even more work. But what we need to know, and this is what it eventually comes to, is that none of that has the completeness of utter peacefulness in it no matter how exalted the state of Consciousness is and not simply because it's impermanent that too, but that is not all of the reasons in this particular sutta, the reason particularly given for the unsatisfactoriness of any state of being is the disturbance it causes it isn't totally peaceful Now, what's the base consisting of nothingness? Interesting, isn't it? How can there be nothing if there's something? What's nothingness? If we see this room which is full of people and um, mats and cushions, there's something in the room. When we take all these things out, there's nothing in the room we will say there is nothing. It's hardly likely that we will say there is a room. We'll just say there's nothing. So what we experience when there there has been infinity of space and then the infinity of consciousness taking over into this utter spaciousness, the next step is an experience of the fact that within that immensity there is absolutely nothing which can be delineated that has form or substance and that has any substantiality to it nothing exists within all that immensity which can be pinpointed so without at least anything being pinpointed coming out of that particular experience one realises That oneself, of course, is exactly the same. Nothing to be pinpointed, all in flux, always moving, no substantial core in it. So we have the sunyata, the voidness, running over into the anatta, into the no-self, the corelessness. And we also realize that there is nothing that one can hang on to, that one can say, this is my safety, this is my security, this is me, this is where I shall be there just isn't anything now because a mind is totally at ease and at peace throughout the jhanas, no fear arises. if that kind of understanding should come to a mind who has not had the ability to concentrate and have the jhanic absorption fear would be quite remarkably strong strong enough in many cases to block the path in other words one wouldn't like to go on That's too fearful strong enough also to reject any kind of spiritual uh, practice if one doesn't have a teacher or the teaching who could then reassure that person that this is just one normal step however any of this is totally unnecessary because the jhanas bring the mind to a equilibrium where the mind is capable of accepting whatever is and to accept whatever is is of course the greatest gift if one finally comes to that what could possibly disturb us? If whatever is can be accepted, so here, with the base of nothing that the mind has already has uh, come to a state of such equilibrium that it can accept the fact that there is absolutely nothing in the whole of the universe that has not been projected by mind, by personal mind, not by infinite mind we can use the word infinite mind for infinite consciousness, it doesn't really um, make that much difference so these are two things which we recognize that even the awareness of the uh, base of nothingness is still a disturbance because the mind still has the work. and that the um, this space of nothingness shows us that the universe has nothing in it which can be pinpointed everything is in constant flux all the time and that flux has the nature of particle and wave which our scientists know very well but have never related to their own personal selves we can we can relate the nature of particle and wave to ourselves also. And in that exchange, it does not become a difficult thing to do. Any questions on this? Or quite understandable, yes? Um, The
1: question is about the perception is the personal mind, the individual mind, Mm-hmm. to mm. uh,
0: Well, I always uh, have used in the past this particular simile for that, that four people are walking through a forest. And the first one is um dairy farmer. And he says, uh what a nuisance these trees are. They ought to be cut down because he'd like to have his cows grazing there. The next one is a forest ranger and he looks at the undergrowth and he says, that's got to be set fire to and every second one of these trees got to go because they're making a nuisance of themselves. And the third one is a botanist and he's got a little notebook and he is was in raptures over all the wildflowers and the different species of gum trees. And the fourth one is a conservationist, and he's in his mind or on his paper already writing a letter to the Prime Minister.
1: <laughs>
0: so you've got the same forest, you've got the same four human beings, I mean they're all human beings, and you've got a totally different forest. So it's personal projection that we are uh, saddled with. Now obviously all of us are saying forest, but... It's quite possible that we would all stand outside this house and one would say, Oh, very nice birds. And the other one would say, I can hear the train. And the third one would say, I wonder if it's ever going to get any warmer. I'm feeling cold. And the fourth one might say, "The uh, These gum trees, I wonder whether they should have that many. It's a bit of a, you can't see the sub- view very well. And the next one might say, Nothing but gum trees. Why don't there any pine trees here? and so on, and so on. You have a totally personal projection of the universe. And yet, none of us are aware of the fact that we see the world personally. And that's why we want to convince others of our opinions and are in constant strife because nobody believes us. Everybody makes their own universe. And even in such a small thing, I've thought, and what to speak of big things like religion. <laughs> is, that, is that clear?
1: That, that part is clear,
0: yes. Which part isn't? Well,
1: <laughs> What's what, what is so clear is you then went on to say about the material world being made up of particle and waves. Mm,
0: yes, so not only clear. material world, yes. No. Particle is actually materiality and wave can be sound, waves can be light. So these are that's actually what's existing. But we make something out of it. Out of the sound we might say music or we might say train or we might say awful, or we might say nice. And out of the the light waves we might say, you know, sunshine, or bothering me, or whatever. So we project what we think it is. But within this physical universe, we do find the particles, the universe itself, particles. And you can experience that. In the base of infinite nothingness, some people do experience particles. it's an experience of movement it doesn't have to be totally still, it can be experience of movement also some people experience it as completely still and some people complete uh, as as movement because the universe moves so whatever we experience is still part of the universe we're going to go past the universe in a minute next page <laughs>
1: Hmm? Stephen, you're going to say something about universal mind? Like mm-hmm. you're saying all well, personal minds rejects What does universal mind do? Well, is that's what well, to be honest Where, yes. where the particles in the waves exist in, how they exist in a voice in space, and then come to sit in space.
0: And universal mind is too.
1: Yeah,
0: difference. Mm-hmm. Between what?
1: Between. The, the void contains the particles or the energy, the
0: waves and the particles and the word void doesn't belong in there right.
1: okay, space space, yes it contains
0: the particles and the waves yes the
1: difference space and the universal
0: mind? one is universal consciousness, one is universal space and they okay. one is uh, one, uh, one is within the other naturally right void we'll find out in a minute where well, we're going to get to be absolutely void May
1: <laughs> I ask something? yes uh, is, it, is that existing
0: on an actual level or, or just on level? the the jhanas well that depends how you look at it if an enlightened one goes into the jhanas it's an absolute level if we go into the jhanas it's relative because we think we're having the jhanas (laughs) (laughs) but it's getting a little more a little more absolute (laughs) see if you ask me difficult questions you get difficult answers
1: ask a simple one to get a simple
0: answer <laughs> okay we've got the field of nothingness taken care of haven't we yes okay <laughs> right again Ananda without giving attention to perception of the base consisting of infinite consciousness inf- uh, uh, and nothingness could gives attention to the single state of non-voidness dependent upon the presence of perception of the base consisting of neither perception nor non-perception now to tell you the truth, um, when one reads this without having done it, I mean, it's absolutely meaningless. I mean, there's a perception of something that's neither perception or non-perception. Uh, the words are just sort of going into each other without having any kind of bearing on anything. So one really has to uh, go back into the mind to what, what really happens his mind enters into the perception of the base consisting of neither perception or non-perception and acquires confidence steadiness and precision all right now well, let's first say that this is the eighth jhana nothingness was number seven this is the eighth jhana and the uh, the mind has become very subtle obviously it's only a very very finely tuned mind that can perceive the base of nothingness. I mean, otherwise it has to be tuned fine. So it also recognizes at that time, being tuned so fine, that that still is work. That is still, although it's much better than, you know, trying to work in an ordinary way, it's still much more relaxing and, and uh, fruitful, it still works. So the mind yearns for absolute peace, which it won't get this way, but it's yearning for that. So it wants to get into a state where it doesn't have to perceive, but it gets into a state where it half perceives. It's neither perception nor non-perception. In other words, it doesn't hear, it doesn't see, it tastes, smell, or touch. It doesn't have any of the feelings, but it's, and it doesn't perceive what it's actually doing, so it's having a great rest, but it isn't totally absent from awareness. And this is about the most one can say about it. The Buddha didn't even say that much. This is all he said. <laughs> so it is a very restful state, it is the most regenerating state of all the mental states for uh, getting new energy it has a similarity to the fourth jhana because the fourth jhana is also a very deep state of peacefulness this one is yet, one could say, possibly a little more it has a slight difference in it. With the fourth jhana, although it is a, can be very deep, it can also be halfway. But it can be very deep. There is a certain remainder of an observer there. There is a slight remainder of observer. It's very slight. It's nothing compared to the first three and the next three. It's very slight. In the eighth one, one has no awareness of an observer. That observer just cannot be found. And when one comes out and would like to explain what one has done, the usual explanation is, I just don't know. That's the usual explanation. Very peaceful, but I just don't know. Because the observer has disappeared practically completely. There's an inkling of it left, but it can't be. It isn't enough to give verbalization, really. So, but I- yet the Buddha says he understands that disturbances that would be present depend upon the base consisting of infinite consciousness are not present here. Those that are depend upon the perception of the base of nothingness are not here, but this measure of disturbance is present, that is to say the single state of non-voidness depend upon the presence of perception of the base consisting of neither perception or non-perception. is he's also um, voicing here in a different way, way is the fact that because of being aware and being there, there's still Dukkha. The word disturbance of space is, is, is another expression of Dukkha. And this was the uh, pioneer work, I maybe reforming work that the Buddha did. Because in his day, the eight jhanas were considered to be the epitome of spiritual achievement. And <coughs> very often has been considered that also, although never called the Janus, in the experiences of the Christian mystics. That the, that kind of letting go of self-will and self-awareness means that one has entered into the presence of whatever, God or spirit or whatever one likes to call it that one has become one with that and that was the same in Brahmanism in which the Buddha grew up who considered the 8th jhana to be the joining with Atman the highest spirit that which is the universe and Buddha said no there's still disturbance in the mind because one is still experiencing something So he was in that way a complete reformer. These meditation states have existed at least for 5,000 years that we know of. They are mentioned in the Rig Vedas which are the um, religious books of the Hindu tradition, which was in the Buddhist times called Brahmanism because the Brahmins were in charge of it. They were the priests. They still are that's called Hinduism he took it over in that way but went one step further and that one step further as we'll hear about it in a minute so the um, that was the newness of what he described and uh, to this day the in the Hindu tradition the jhanas are considered to be the epitome of achievement, except for one branch of Hinduism which is called Advaita Vedanta which is the non-dualism and uh, with them it is quite clear that the, uh, the me consciousness has to be totally lost in other words also the experience consciousness which is happening here the disturbance here is the ex- consciousness of experience is clear? Yes, yeah, okay. <laughs> Sometimes when I listen to myself I wonder because, you know, it isn't easy to explain states of mind which are totally out of the ordinary um, stream of, mainstream of experience. Our mainstream of experience is somewhere entirely different from this. So our verbiage and our vocabulary is actually not really geared towards that. And as you can see from the Buddha's explanation, he didn't. He didn't explain. He just said, this is the base of neither perception or non-perception, and that's where you get to. <laughs> so, we've got that far. Now, let's see what happens now. Oh, yeah. Yes. It sounds a bit like a bear hibernating. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know what a bear hibernating sounds like. It sounds like
1: shut off as much as possible and just keep the bare minimum going. <coughs> That's
0: right. <laughs> That's quite right. Well, this one, sure. Absolutely. But well, I don't know whether the bear hibernating knows that he's hibernating. Well, when he comes out, he probably would know that he has been agonizing. Yes, it's a very good description. I'm going to use it. (laughs) (laughs) That's quite
1: right.
0: He understands this field of perception is void of perception of the base consisting of infinite consciousness. It's void of the base consisting of nothingness and he understands there is present only this non-voidness, that is to say the single state of non-voidness depend upon the presence of perception of the base consisting of neither perception or non-perception so he sees it as void of what is not there, but of what remains there he understands there is still that present there. Now this too has been for him an alighting upon voidness that accords with what actually is without perversion of meaning and is pure. Now the word also without perversion of meaning is also due to the Buddha's brahminical heritage, because the word voidness is banded about in all Hindu traditions and meaning the meaning of it is something different in each tradition. So he says, here, this is the way it really is. There is no perversion of meaning here. And we do know it from our own experience. That we have probably heard the, the word voidness and void, and uh, especially if we've had anything to do with Buddhism, we have heard it. And most of the time, who knows what it is? What's void? We don't know, you know. So uh, he says, this is really what it means. One thing isn't there. There's only one thing left. And again, we need to realize that he's also saying, that we have to know in which one of these states we're in, so that we know which one isn't there. Otherwise, we haven't got the understood experience. Huh? Now, again, Ananda, without giving attention to perception of the base consisting of nothingness, to the base consisting of neither perception nor non-perception, a could gives attention to the single state of non-voidness depend upon the presence of the timeless concentration of mind. Signless concentration of mind. What's that? Interesting, isn't Signless concentration of mind is what I have uh, called the still point. And that's my own personal invention, that word. The Buddha hasn't used that. It's a point where the mind doesn't move. It's a point where the mind is absolutely and utterly still, and totally pinpointed now signless concentration of mind has a terminology meaning in the Buddha's words it means that the mind does not focus on any anything that has any it is the way the doorway to Nibbana through the understanding of impermanence it's called signless deliverance signless deliverance deliverance. Um, when we have understood impermanence completely we can realize that there is nothing worth paying attention to unless we are forced to I mean we may be forced to at times when we have you know, worldly connections. But when they're not forced to, there's absolutely nothing worth paying attention to because everything constantly changes. So, having seen that as a sign of impermanence, we then make the effort with a mind which has become concentrated through the meditative practice, we make the effort to have the mind in such a condition that it is totally still and focuses on nothing at all. When it's so pinpointed that it has like a very small point, within that point there doesn't have to be any substance. So we have... The word signless also means no significance. There's nothing in it. And the concentration of mind is based on that fact that we know there's nothing in it, that everything moves. We want to become utterly peaceful. We really want to have the peace that passes all understanding. And getting that peace that passes all understanding, we've got to get beyond that which we understand. Otherwise we can't get that. So it is very clear to the mind who has done this thing and has had some understanding of the Buddha's teaching that it needs to find that still point which is like a pinpoint like a pinhead smaller than a pinhead and has no movement and mind no movement and no no substance in it at all that's signless concentration of mind. Is that clear? Hmm? Sort of. Yeah. I think that's about as, as clear as I can make it. The Buddha doesn't say anything, he just says signless concentration of mind, you know. So either one knows it or one doesn't, I suppose. <laughs> Is there any, any
1: awareness of the surface?
0: a tiny little bit um, in the beginning there is in the beginning there it depends on where one goes with this now we'll see where this one is going huh? it depends what one does with it. his mind enters into the signless concentration of mind and acquires confidence steadiness and decision he understands thus disturbances that would be present dependent upon the perception of the base of nothingness disturbances on the presence of the perception of the base of neither perception or non-perception are not present here. Only this measure of disturbance is present that is to say, that disturbance which has life as its condition, depends upon the presence of this body with its six basis. Now, this is a very significant point. We are now going beyond the jhanas and are into that particular moment where the mind becomes totally free of any kind of awareness and thinking now that is a moment where the observer and the observed become one and at that moment the moment after, the moment after the mind knows there was no mental disturbance but this body and the six sense faces they are here and they are disturbed so at that time the mind having become so strong and so clear it has actually focused in a way which has no understanding in it this understanding is the next moment afterwards this is the next moment of understanding, it's not the same moment now he understands this. Ve- the field of this field of perception is void of perception of the base consisting of nothingness, void of the base of neither perception or non-perception, there is present only this non-voidness, that is to say, that non-voidness with life as its condition, dependent on this body with its six bases. So he sees it as void of what is not there, but of what remains there he understands. There is that still present there. Now this too has been for him an alighting upon voidness, that accords with what actually is without perversion of meaning and is pure. This is a very important sentence because, you see, what the Buddha really was up against, was he was up against many teachers, spiritual teachers. India is choc-a-block with them, today and then, who were all teaching something. And very rarely, according to the way it really was, and so he was constantly trying to realign the understanding of the people that were listening to him, get them away from what we might now call esoteric um, theories to actual reality. There was a lot of esoteric theories in involved in, in India, still are today, and our uh, present Western uh, civilization is full of them so we constantly have to realign our st- understanding away from a theory to the, to the reality this is the reality this is what really is there the body is there with the six sense space and it is a disturbance but the mind at the time of being concentrated on that point on that one point there was only that disturbance that this thing is still existing Now for that reason the word Nibbana denotes enlightenment while still in the body. And when the body goes, it's Parinibbana. Nibbana is liberation with the remainder, Parinibbana without the remainder. Now we don't usually call it like that in English, but Parinibbana certainly means the uh, Complete freedom without remainder. And without remainder means without the body. Because the body is a nuisance. So we have to here now. Let's see what happens now. Again ananda, without giving attention to perception of the base consisting of nothingness, without the attention to the perception of the base consisting of neither perception nor non-perception, bhikkhu gives attention to the single state of non-voidness dependent upon the presence of the signless concentration of mind. His mind enters into the signless concentration of mind and acquires confidence, steadiness, and precision. He understands thus, this signless concentration of mind is conditioned and mentally produced. He understands whatever is conditioned and mentally produced is impermanent and liable to cessation when he knows when sees thus his mind is liberated from the taint of sensual desire, taint of being, from the taint of ignorance. Enlightened. In other words. Now, these are the three taints the three asavas, to which we um, sometimes... Um, that's what I want to find it. taint of sensual desire, taint of being, taint of ignorance. These three are um, sometimes called four, the taint of view, sometimes they're called the cankers. I did read that out to you, the afterwards They are sensual desire, the, the craving to be, and the um, ignorance of the truth of non-self. So the liberation comes about because the mind has entered into that signless concentration which I've already described and while he understands that the body is a disturbance because it's present he also now understands that even the signless concentration of mind is a condition and mentally produced obviously the condition which we have to produce and we cannot possibly stay in it We cannot uh, conduct our ordinary life, which has to be conducted in some manner or form, by staying in that kind of state, and the timeless concentration of mind. So we have to produce the condition mentally to be in it, which means we have to concentrate. And as we concentrate and are in it, Naturally, the not only that it's impermanent and that we fall out of that state again, but also the realization that it is a condition means that we are dependent upon a condition and therefore not free. We only become free when we have no more conditions to support us. So as long as there is mind and body, they are dependent upon conditions. So when we realize we do not want to be dependent upon conditions, at that time we can give up that craving to be. And as we give up the craving to be, we give up the taint of ignorance, the ignorance which brings us back again and again into the realm of person death. And we give up that other taint of sensual desire which makes being more comfortable. Our sensual desire is always for pleasant sensations naturally and not for unpleasant ones. So having given up that craving to be because we realize we can only be as long as there is a condition to support that being, in this case, even the most exalted mind-state, when we give that up, we give up the things. Now, as we give that up, it doesn't mean that we commit suicide. What we give up is that urgent desire to be here. We will remain as long as the body will remain bodies have a certain lifespan, and that's what they are here for when the body crumbles the mind will not have any karma content to return here because it doesn't have a me content so with that understanding that even that concentration which is Totally, without apparently any disturbance, has no focus, no su- no, no substance, and no content. It's got focus, but no substance and no content. That particular concentration on silence, concentration. Even that is still a condition. Then we give up, and we actually truly give up. We cannot find total satisfaction within personal existence. So we give up, and as we give up, of course, all things will be added on to you, because what we give up is personal satisfaction, and the minute we give up looking for personal satisfaction, there is absolutely no way to be dissatisfied. and that's peace so that's the way to liberation I had a letter today from a very dear friend of mine who's a nun in Sri Lanka she's American she's the right hand of the novel Nana Ponika. she's his closest friend and uh, assistant she's been meditating for many many years and she has been typing and editing practically every book that has come out of Buddhist Publication Society. So her head is full of all the suttas. And she writes, as we you know we discuss these things in our letters, that it is impossible to find a discourse about meditation in which the Buddha does not say, and about liberation, in which the Buddha does not say the way is with the jhanas there is one commentary on one discourse which talks about that that's a commentary there's a single discourse which says which talks about dry insight it doesn't exist so it is um, a thing to remember that this is the way to go and it's not that difficult Also, when you realize that there is infinite consciousness, and you come to that, even just to the understanding, I'm just talking intellectually now about it, that there is mind, but there isn't my mind. This is all one mind and body. There is space and there is consciousness. You will realize, of course, that if there's only one mind, surely if one person can do it, everybody can do it. There's no differentiation. The only difference is that some people are able to let go of their miseries a little easier and open themselves up to a mind state which requires this openness and requires this um, non-attention to personal problem and to thinking. And other people have more difficulty with that and it takes a little longer. That's all. But there's not a single mind that couldn't do this whatever one mind can do all minds can do it's a matter of directing oneself there and as we can see that over and over again we direct ourselves towards the Dhamma we direct ourselves towards the the meditation and that's where we are we can direct ourselves towards uh, uh, discritics and we can direct ourselves towards uh, uh, going to the beach very easy, so there we are Wherever we direct the mind to, that's where we'll be. I mean, it's a little easier to get to the discotheque than just to get to the space <laughs> of nothingness, but still. <laughs> it's only a matter of time, isn't it? So, we've, apparently we've got liberated, but we'll see what the end of this pivot says, huh? Mm-hmm. Not much left. Oh yes, there is a fair bit left, but I think it's a rep- repetition. So we're liberated from these three taints, huh? when liberated there comes the knowledge it is liberated it says it is liberated that's interesting It's not I am liberated although quite often it does say I am but in this particular sutta, apparently it says it is liberated what is this it? it's mind and body that's being liberated this mind and body is liberated it is liberated he understands birth is exhausted the life divine has been lived out what was to be done is done, there is no more of this to come. This is a traditional sentence which is always used at the end of each sutta which finishes with Nibbana. It's always the same sentence. He understands thus disturbances that would be present depend upon the taint of sensual desire are not present here. Disturbances that would be present depend upon the taint of being are not present here. <coughs> disturbances that would be present dependent on the taint of ignorance are not present here and only this measure of disturbance is present that is to say that non-voidness with life as its conditioned, condition depend on the presence of this body with its sixth sense basis the only disturbance that's left is the body with the sixth sense basis and that of course will go that's guaranteed he understands this field of perception is void of the taint of sensual desire. This field of perception is void of the taint of being. This field of perception is void of the taint of ignorance. And he understands. There is present only this non-voidness. That is to say, that non-voidness with life as its conti- condition depend upon the presence of this body with the sixth basis. So he sees it as void of what is not there. But what of what remains there he understands there is that still present there now this has been for him an alighting upon voidness that accords with what actually is without perversion of meaning is pure and is unsurpassed by any other so he actually talks about his own teaching saying it's unsurpassed by any other there's no perversion and this is the only time that this sentence has come about, it has no perversion it's actual this is the way it really is it's totally logical, you can understand it, you can experience it there's no uh, theory, there's no explanation, there's no projection this is what you can explain, and it's unsurpassed by any other whatever monks or divines in the past have entered upon and abode in a voidness that was purified and unsurpassed by any other they have all of them entered upon and abode in this voidness that is pure and unsurpassed by any other Whatever monks and widens in the future will do so have done it the same way, Where those that have done it in the present have done it in the same way. This is also very traditional that the Buddha says in the past, in the future and present this is the way it has to be done in many other sutras also. Therefore, Ananda, you should train thus. We will enter upon and abide in the voidness that is pure and unsurpassed by any other. This is what the Blessed One said. The venerable Ananda was satisfied and he delighted in the Blessed One's words. All right, question. hmm Yes.
1: Why didn't the Buddha's enlightenment and teaching set off an unlimited chain reaction of the mind?
0: It did. There was uh, uh, supposedly 1,500 arahans there. Un- an
1: unlimited chain
0: reaction. Oh, unlimited chain reaction. Well, he, he, he died. Because he stopped being so... Well, I mean, why should it? Well, you say, why sh- why didn't it? So why should it? What is the thought behind why it should?
1: Did, did not the... Other people become like a spiritual
0: Sure. Some of. So not all, but some... Many, many taught, certainly. So, what does that that guarantee? I'm all teaching you all. What does that (laughs) guarantee? Does that guarantee anything? I mean, you know, it doesn't guarantee a thing. I mean, the Buddha taught thousands of people, you know, and um, it's a very interesting story, not about the Buddha, but it's about an uh, Arahant monk I mean he's said to be an Arahant uh, I can't, you know, sort of judge that or vouch for it or anything but he's recognized as an Arahant monk in the northeast of Thailand, Tanachan Boa. and uh, he told, tells the story that uh, he comes from the next village to sort of his monastery the people of, his, of that area built the monastery from and his home is the next village and his brother lives in the next village. Well, all the years that Tanachamaboa has been in that monastery, the brother never came near him. Never heard any of the Dhamma. And in the end, the brother murdered somebody. And that's his own brother. So. And that's an arahant. So what to say. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I heard the story only secondhand, second hand, but he does have Western amongst us, so we do hear stories from them once in a while. Hmm. It's an interesting story anyway. So, you know, people become enlightened when, uh, when they're ready. It seems to me it's like an apple on a tree. You, know, you can stand under that tree and say to the tree, would you please get this apple ripe? I need an apple right now. And the tree isn't going to care one bit. and. Uh, then maybe there is the apple ripen, you say, well look, hold on to the apple, I'm not hungry now, and the tree doesn't care, and the apple <laughs> is ripe; it falls off the tree. It's got to ripen. And as we ripen, we have the good fortune to hear the true Dhamma, we may mature. I mean, not everybody has the good fortune to hear the true Dhamma. And that um, opportunity to hear the true Dhamma becomes less and less as for the simple reason, as you can see, that in Asia the Buddhist countries are all falling to bits Tibet has, uh, so to say, disappeared as a Buddhist country Uh, Cambodia has, Vietnam has Um, in Burma you can't get in or out Uh, Sri Lanka is getting a little better, but it's also still very uh, Politically difficult, and um, Thailand at the moment doesn't seem to have any problems of major proportions. But the Buddhist countries are getting less and less, and so we are having less and less opportunity to hear the true Dhamma. And also, in time, as it goes away from the original master, in time, uh, it becomes more and more perverted. The uh, the, um, first of all, watering down happens naturally, but also the interpretation becomes less and less. So we have less and less chances. So we must take our chances when we have them. Hmm. But you see, I mean, uh, the, uh, enlightenment aspect is a very personal one. And, uh, even though you can have, as happened in those days and still does, there are enlightened teachers and you get, um, you know, they have disciples. There's no guarantee. None whatsoever. There has to be the readiness, there has to be the maturity, there has to be the rightness, and um, many factors. But it has set opportunity without without the teaching being available we'd even have less chance you know so there is a chain reaction, certainly but it's not you know sort of multiples of multiples yes um, you said that the observer becomes the
1: observed right well, I wonder if they you said about the still point and giving up the ego gives up I guess
0: is the ego the individual mind? well you could say that yes one could put it that way the ego is the one that pretends there is an individual mind right yes.
1: really there is no individual mind so if that goes then whatever is I'm trying to then relate the observer to the observed after that thing happens, after the ego gives up and the illusion disappears. <coughs> I'm trying to see then what happens. how it then comes about the observer becomes
0: the observer. how that comes about because there's no separation anymore there's no, no separation between what we think we experience and the experience itself there only is the experience uh, it, apparently it isn't, it doesn't it's an enlightenment experience it's the, it's, the, it's the only time it really happens. well in the fourth one has that impression but it doesn't because when one comes out one is a little more purified but it isn't in an enlightenment experience. In the enlightenment experience the observer disappears, which means the ego disappears.
1: Is
0: there that That's right. But in the first three steps, which I've already explained, uh, especially in the first one, the, uh, the feeling of it is very, very mild. The second one, the feeling becomes stronger, and the third one is quite strong, and it's only a permanent disappearance of that ego condition in full, full liberation. The Buddha here speaks about full liberation. He's not dividing it up into parts of full liberation he's talking about. So the, uh, the mind, you see now, and also another interesting aspect is that obviously in order to get into these jhanas we have to stop thinking, no? I mean, there's uh, 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 no doubt about it. However, in order to understand all these things, uh, and to know him, he, he keeps saying he understands. This is all happening in the mind. The mind sees everything understands everything differently. Now, this different understanding was always available. Always. Because it exists in the universal mind. But we didn't latch on to it until we finally have practiced well enough, long enough in this life or past life, are ripe and mature to latch on to this universal understanding. It's always there. It never disappears. And this this always there is The fact that we all have the seed of enlightenment in us, because universal mind has that understanding in it. It's only personal mind that gets mixed up. (laughs) Personal mind gets all mixed up. Now, when when the mind goes to this, um, it wants to see the. um, Let me see if I got the right page. Now, here it is. I enters into the signless concentration of mind and then he realized that the body is a disturbance and then he enters again into the signless concentration of mind yes does it again and then he realized that the mind is a condition even this signless concentration is a condition mentally produced and then he realizes that both things, body and mind are the uh, the condition which are creating disturbance and then can go past this hanging on to it, so both of these cases, in both cases one would, it doesn't say that that the observer becomes the observer, it's not said here at all, but in both cases, one goes beyond the, uh, the personal into the totally impersonal, divided into two, this can happen all at once, of course, it doesn't have to be two separate occasions, this can be all one occasion. But the mind goes into the still point. I like to call it the still point. It's the only thing that's meaningful to me. The word time is concentration, I can explain it, but the still point is that's what's meaningful to me. The mm. mind goes in there and realizes right then and there, after it has come out, it's only a moment when it's observed and observed is one. When it comes out it realizes right away that body and mind are nothing but a disturbance. Because mm. in reality there is no need to keep them okay and again any of these experiences and I'd like to emphasize this once more because it's very important whether it's such an experience or any other anything that you think is worth noting bring it back to mind as much and as often as you can it cannot become part of your inner being unless it's solidified inside that's why if you've had a significant meditative experience bring the feeling of it back through memory we can bring through memory the feeling that arose back and again gain that state that came from it and then of course if it's jhanas doing it again if it's a very significant uh, um, happening then bring that feeling back and these are things then become they become part of one it's very interesting actually because now with the Arahant obviously person fully liberated he doesn't have to do that it's such a tremendous step he doesn't have to do that but anyone who isn't Arahant yet has to do this it doesn't matter what it is anything that's worth noting whether it's real major thing, or just a small matter. Bring it back again and again. And attend to the feeling which brings it, which is um, in conjunction with it. Okay, any questions?
1: So is is the Buddha for intimating um, when he says um, that the mind realizes that the mind and the body are are a disturbance I mean, is he then saying that
0: in actual fact it's our identification with the body and the mind that get in the way of experiencing well, yes, certainly but what he's also saying when he realizes that body and mind are disturbances the desire to be here disappears and the minute that desire disappears then we're free of sensual desire free of the desire to be and free of ignorance we realize that it is absolutely totally, utterly immaterial whether we're here or not not clear?
1: whether we're here in this body
0: Body and mind. Yeah. In order to become liberated, one has to give up the idea that there's any significance to this. In fact, one has to give up the idea that there's any significance to anything. You see, on the way to liberation, we use the Dhamma as our raft. So that's significant. We don't want to drown, so we use the raft. But once we're there, even that's insignificant. That's nothing of any significance. There is a universe, but that's about all you can say about it. You see, once you actually see that, I think everybody I've ever talked to who have had an inkling of this said they had to laugh when they saw this. Because one runs around in circles on this globe. People make money. They uh, have uh, marriages and divorces and they get all upset about things and they want to get things and they want to do things. For what? It's as If you watch an ant-heap that are all running around. Have you ever watched them? I've watched them many times. It's impossible to ascertain what they're doing, but they're so busy, it's unbelievable. (laughs) It's the same here. It's impossible to figure out what everybody is doing, but everybody is busy. (laughs) And only when one has come to that point of seeing that is it possible to let go. And it's got to be a re, it's gotta be a seeing and and you see the Buddha gave us a way. I mean, you know, he said, you know, go through these things and you'll see. It's void of significance which means signless, actually also, void of significance. Is it like the
1: ultimate
0: is the Yes, yes which is called, in terminology, dispassion. Yes, if dispassion goes a step further than disenchantment, it comes from disenchantment, then comes first comes seeing things as they really are, then comes disenchantment, then comes dispassion. And from dispassion we go to liberation. But you see, when you get liberated, there's nobody there to be liberated. But that doesn't alter the fact of utter freedom. It just alters the fact of who's there. Nobody there. But as long as we want it, we want to go that way, we do have a significant help in the Dhamma, in the Buddha's teaching. But once we're there, show the... So you can shove the raft back over the river. We don't need it. No longer significant. So was that uh, cleared according to your question? A
1: little bit, no. Anything else?
0: I don't. I'm not sure exactly what this question is. It. But what, what
1: is the role of compassion in the in going through the drama? you
0: talked about the last four being the the needs, need, so there is something that have to feel? All of them. There, there isn't a single jhana that, that exists without feeling. You can't do it without this knowing, it's got to be feeling. The experience is the feeling, the understanding is the knowing. So first you experience it, that is you feel it, and afterwards you understand it, and that's the knowing. So obviously we're talking about the knowing. I mean, there's no way one can feel it while we're discussing it. But it's got to be felt. So you're asking something about compassion. Mm. How does compassion get into the jhanas, or what? Well, it can get you there. It's a nice trigger. Well,
1: there's the connection that I'm kind of... I don't know exactly what I'm trying to put together but it's something about the path of devotion and the the two different ways of going to enlightenment and one is more heart and devotion oriented and one is more wisdom oriented
0: you can say that um, one is uh, based on calm and one is based on insight at the apex they've got to meet the one who's got calm has got to have insight, otherwise he can't get liberated. And the one who's got insight has got to be calm, otherwise he can't get across, right? He can't get across with a thinking mind, it's impossible. You has got to have pinpointed on finder's concentration. So, they come together. But, it can be, a person can first gain a fair bit of insight through a mind which is very analytical, and deliberates and sees a lot as things really are and then come to calm after that another mind, can go through calm, through the jhana first and then get insight. Uh, a very... In- people who are very, very intelligent and do a lot of thinking they cannot drop that just because they'd like to they've got to use that for gaining insight but other people who don't have so much of that thinking habit um, may be able to go through calm first. So you've got those. Now, compassion is one of the vehicles of the four Brahma Viharas, loving kindness, compassion, joy with others, and equanimity, which are developed for the the calm meditator. The meditator who goes through the jhanas also develops these four to go with it. First of all, equanimity is part of the jhanas, but loving-kindness can be a trigger. Many people use loving-kindness as a trigger, a um, very valid trigger, to get calm. And it's a very natural thing for people to try to develop because um, the person who is calm, of course, you know, PT, as I said, the first jhana, counteracts it will. So we have already an automatic our purification system within the jhana and we don't have to work quite as hard to get rid of our ill will when we do the jhana, we still have to work at it but it isn't quite as difficult now the person who goes through the inside first and doesn't come to the young has to work much harder to let go of the world much more difficult, much more work. that can be done too, but it's much more difficult now compassion of course only becomes total and complete when a person has seen, at least some step into Nibbāna, seen the misery which everybody creates for themselves in their own mind, and then compassion becomes very complete, also through the fact when we see that there is no separate being. So if we can't have compassion for ourselves, obviously we can't have it for anybody else, but if we can at least have some feeling for ourselves, well, the same feeling applies to everybody. So compassion grows with the jhanas, because of purification. It grows with the immaterial jhanas, because we see no separation. And it has, of course, the fact also with it that we have to work at it in daily life. So is that what you were asking? (laughs) (laughs) the Buddha's compassion was complete it says in this uh, Pali Canon that after his enlightenment he meditated every morning and uh, threw out his net of compassion to see whom he could catch in it which means with his clairvoyance he looked to see whom he could find who would benefit from his teaching and then he very often found one person and he would walk for miles to get to that one person to teach that person because that was a person that he knew through his clairvoyance was ready was mature enough to be taught so that was called his net of compassion and he did that every morning and of course not having an ego the compassion is complete epitome of compassion one would say one of the things which I think should arise from knowing these things is the understanding how much difficulty the ordinary person has with their mind and compassion for oneself and others who are obviously not enlightened I think that is a very important aspect which can arise from knowing all the steps one has to take in order to come to a state of being where there's utter peace and harmony All clear? No more questions?
1: I'm not um, totally clear about uh, the state of perception and non perception
0: No, well, that's a very difficult one. (laughs) Yes, what would you like to ask? Just um, a further clarification on, on
1: what the mind is perceiving and not perceiving.
0: It's not perceiving any sense contact. But it is perceiving that it's not perceiving. And I'm not trying to be funny. No, not. <laughs> It's not perceiving any sense contact. That's right. It, it also has a certain aspect, which is quite interesting the 4th one has the feeling of going down and the 8th one has a feeling of going up or whatever that's worth definitely in the 4th one as if you are falling into a deep well and quite often one may fall just maybe 20 feet and not the whole 150 or whatever deepness the well has which is quite alright there are certain differences in depth in all of the jhanas um, this can be an overwhelming experience and it can be just going through them and saying, oh yeah, that was number five, all right then you know, something like that it can be just like that too and with the eighth one it appears as if the mind has lifted which in the fourth one it certainly hasn't it plunges I hope not somebody is going to come and tell me about the AIDS and tell me they that. hasn't any experience of this
1: <laughs> But it's
0: certainly true that there are no sense perceptions and that the mind knows that there are no sense perceptions. That it's perceiving and the other is a non-perceiving. Yeah. Look at the relationship you have with yourself. see if it's loving and caring appreciative and if you find that's not so arouse those feelings for yourself by appreciating all the good things you've ever done Look at your relationship with everyone here Make it loving, caring and appreciative Remembering the efforts everyone is making the relationship you have with your parents make it loving and caring and appreciative remembering all the things your parents have done for your benefit the relationship you have with those that are near and dear to you, make sure it's loving and caring and appreciative of all the good things they've ever done. think of how you relate to all your friends. Give them all your love and your care and your appreciation, remembering everything good they've ever done or said. of all the people you know you've met anywhere, you've talked to, you've seen. Give them your loving appreciation for the effort they're making to lead a good human life.